So, good morning, Jeff. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Caleb. Um, Jeff and I were just talking before we started recording. Uh, You know, I should probably like, you know, hello, Jeff Gerard. Hello, Caleb. (laughs) uh, We were talking um, before we started recording. We've been talking for a couple days about, um, you know, we've talked a lot about expectations of, you know, how we should set our expectations for our clients, right? We've talked a lot about that. um, And we've talked a lot about a lot of things in their, what I would call general definitions. Um, Mm -hmm. But our industry as, you know, if you're listening and you're an artisan, you you probably know this, our industry is a little bit funky. Um, A, it's not really an industry yet. Um, It will be. And I mean, it's only 20 years old and there are very few people realistically that do this for a living. Um, And, you know, I want to kind of get out of the way. I do do this for a living. Um, and, uh, it's, you know, this is, yes, I'm, I'm part of the ownership team at CCI now. Um, even though I, you know, even though I bought in, it's, it's still legitimate and valid. Uh, that's just another aspect of your business. You have, you have a full time shop. I mean, that's where we do our classes. Yeah. So I'm a full-time artisan. Um, I have a full-time functional shop. I've got employees. And a very large, impressive, and rich portfolio too. I might I add. Um, I've worked very hard. So, um, but you know, as an artisan in this community, you know, I've I've kind of taken notice of the fact that we have what I would term very loose definitions for things that have other definitions, right? So. Um, I kind of wanted to take this episode and define some colloquial terms as they are defined. Okay, so observations, if you will, take some take some observations uh, of what our community calls things, um, and and you know, kind of run those out to their logical conclusions, and then also. Um, kind of give a, you know, talk, talk with y'all. I mean, certainly if anybody joins on this, this, what would be live, it's a little early, but, um, you know, talk with, uh, by the way, we're recording this at 7:41 AM. So a little bit earlier than we normally do. I, uh, have to get into the shop. Um, and so we decided to record it a little bit early today, but I also wanted to, um, talk about, we've talked about client expectations. I want to talk about artisan expectations. I want to talk about what I, as an artisan, what you as an artisan, expect of your concrete um you know and and again we're going to talk about a lot of things from you know mixed design to sealer and uh yeah so so let's get going um jeff i know that you kind of came across an article that you wrote what 15 years ago more than 15 years ago yeah so so a lot of a lot of folks know who i am there's some new folks who may have discovered this who don't know who i am um I got started in the concrete countertop industry before it was an industry in, um, well, July 1999. So that's 24 years ago. Um, I'm certainly not at the beginning like Buddy Rhodes or Futong Chang, who are considered, especially Buddy, the the grandfather of this industry and is a very well-respected gentleman um, who I'm privileged to to call a a friend. the the history of this industry tells 
the story and lays the foundation to where we are now. And that is a very, I call this a grassroots craft movement, um, which is sometimes treated as a hobby, but that's okay, right? You know, you do this for yourself or whatever. Um, versus a top-down manufacturing process like, oh, I'm going to start a car company. So I'm going to build a factory and all that and drive everything from the top down in terms of we define everything in terms of uh, what our vehicles are going to look like, what they're going to be made out of, how they're going to perform, this, that, and the other thing. And it's all very carefully tailored. And I'm going to use a very loaded word that some people have issues with, engineered. I think people don't understand what that word is. And part of the colloquialisms that you're going to talk about, Caleb, I think we should talk about what that word means and what it implies. But I digress. Um, so as a craft movement of individuals who start working with a cool new material to do things that is normally not used with, or it's used for, um, concrete being used mainly for things like foundations and sidewalks and roads and utilitarian structures. There are some, you know, statuary kind of things and fountains and stuff like that. But by and large, it's a utilitarian material. So the pioneers really started adopting this material and creating their own versions of this material um, to do things that were very much outside the box, mm -hmm. making sculptures and concrete countertops and things like that. And that was revolutionary. Now, at the time, the technology of mixed design, the understanding of what I'm going to call thin structures or, or very thin structures, because I'm a structural engineer. So to me and my, my, my colleagues, my professional colleagues, thin is like four inches and four inches is considered super thin. Like normally things that aren't significantly structural are cast that thin. Um, you know, we're talking major buildings, not like residential stuff. Well, these artisans who had to create their own mixes and kind of all do it without any kind of real technical understanding and technical guidance or, or any kind of serious uh, specific education in concrete mix design or, or, or reinforcing or anything like that kind of, we're going at it, seat of the pants, trial and error, lots of error, lots of trials and gradually success grew from pieces that broke or didn't cure right or, or all that. In addition, the sealer technology was quite, quite immature. Mm. Now, in the old days, all sealers came from some other industry, mainly the decorative concrete industry, stamped patios, that sort of thing. So well, and there's only a handful of the existing now today, uh, newer technology sealers are out of this industry. So right. we've got a couple, but the rest of them, you know, even some of the very notable ones uh, that get talked about a lot are actually out of a different industry. Yes. Yeah. The flooring industry is, well, for one, it's huge. Mm -hmm. um, and two, that's where most things are derived from, either right. specifically, a, you know, borrowed from, repackaged, or like in the case of Omega and Ovation, the, the, 
the known and proven chemistries that work, right? The base chemistries, the Lego building blocks of how things are put together were used as the, the foundational basis for crafting and tailoring something specific to our industry. Um, likewise, you know, you're looking at, take, take for instance, uh, acrylic sealers, whether they're water-based or solvent-based sealers. Um, a great example is Stamp Shield, you know, that we're going to be carrying and Trinic makes that. Uh, it's a fantastic acrylic sealer and acrylic sealers like that as a general class are widely used on things like ceiling sidewalks and driveways and patios. And that's what they're tailored for, right? <clears throat> that doesn't mean you can't use them for other things, but you have to first understand and respect what is that product truly tailored for? Mm-hmm. Because if you use a product that's made for a specific application and take it outside of that realm and then <clears throat> excuse me, impose other deliberate or unintentional expectations on it, then you can cause yourself a world of hurt. So as, as Caleb said um, a while ago, and I can't find the original document because I didn't have time to search for it, and it's been organized somewhere in the vast annals of CCI's archive, of which there are hundreds of thousands of documents and photos over the years. I couldn't find the original document that I wrote. But I do have it on the CCI website, and I want to share that. I'm, I'm not going to like set it, put it up there for you to read the whole thing because it's it's about a page long. It's fairly fairly long, but I want you to be aware that it exists, mm-hmm. and then you know, so have you at least get a glimpse of it. And we're going to summarize it here. So pardon me for a moment while I switch screens to this. All right. So this is my epiphany and you can got it, find it on the CCI website. And then if you can follow my cursor, you go to free info and there's articles. And then of the articles, you go to ceiling. And then here I'm going to go to my concrete countertop sealer epiphany. Now I wrote this, I'm going to, I'm going to, I wrote a ton of articles in 2005, 2006, 2007. So somewhere in that time frame is when this article but essentially, it's we as manufacturers need to understand that some people want their countertops to stay looking like they look when they bought them. Right. And some people want or are willing to let their countertops age and acquire patina. Okay. So, who do you? want to bear the responsibility for keeping your concrete looking like you, you or your customer. And that's at the heart of this. So I'm going to switch back from this, but this is, this is the article I'm referring to. Um, Well, and I think it's worth noting that, and you say this in the article, that both of those are valid. Absolutely. Just like, you know, in the, in the plumbing industry, there are, there are uh, faucets usually made of bronze. They're called a living finish. I don't know how popular they are right today. But, um, you know, that's essentially a surface finish that is going to change over time as you use it. Some people like that. Other people don't. And that's why there are other finishes like chrome and brushed stainless steel and things like that for people who don't want that. And manufacturers recognize that some people want that look. They want that 
that history and you offer that. And that's, that's again, valid, totally legitimate. But here's, here's where I'm coming from. And this is where that article, the point of the article was, is there are really two opposite and legitimate ends of the spectrum. On one hand, you have that finish that acquires a patina. So let, let's take bare concrete as an example. Um, everybody knows that bare concrete stains all that. Very and if easy. somebody wants that, that is completely legitimate. Just like you have that beautiful dining room table uh, made out of some Old sort of wood, heart pine, mm -hmm. and it looks gorgeous. Does it look factory fresh? Absolutely not. That's not the look you wanted. No, I mean, and, and to be fair, so it was funny. I was actually having a similar conversation with Lauren, my wife, last night. Um, because we did. We asked, uh, we had a, a wood artisan build that table for us um, probably three years ago, four years ago, probably mm -hmm. four years ago. Uh, we were still living in Orlando at the time. And um, it was it's old growth, red heart pine. One of the one of the boards he used is so saturated with resin that he could literally shine a light through it, um, which is pretty cool. That's really cool. Yeah, and uh, and we told him we were like oil it. It's all we want. Just oil. and it's it's never been reoiled. It just it just is. And I asked her. I said, "So that dining room table? Would you want that in your kitchen?" And she said, "No." Yeah. Because then it wouldn't look clean. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that there are. There's a um, there's a juxtaposition that you kind of have to ride the line on, um, I think, uh, where offering a finish like that is totally valid. You know, there are definitely sealers out there that um, are going to give you uh, a sheen without giving you a ton of protection um, and allowing that surface to. So maybe it's not going to, you know, stain within a minute, but it might stain within an hour. Uh, or it might stay within 20 minutes. Um, and, you know, so if you are willing to accept or, or if the client really is willing to accept those cup rings and mm -hmm. wine stains and uh, things of that nature that over the, the course of years and years become a patina, then I think that's a totally valid thing. Uh, there are some artisans I'm aware of who, quote unquote, pre-patina their, their stuff. And that's fine. Sure. Um, but I here's where I take issue. It's like, I don't think every client should have to be forced into that box. Right. Um, so that, that would be like telling everybody you only get one color. You know, the old Henry Ford, you can have any color you want as long as it's black. Right. Um, no. Uh, so I think that there are levels to that. I would not want my car to be. Yeah, you can only have a convertible. Right. Like I wouldn't want my car to be sitting out in my driveway and so you know be rusting, mm -hmm. right? Um, I wouldn't also want my car to be bronze because that's yeah. you know what I mean. So I think there are levels to the acceptability of patina. If you want, you know, and then there's also the food safety concern. If you have uh, a surface that's absorbing a lot of these things, like is it is it um, What's the word? Uh, Hygienic, use, sanitary. If I'm uh, seasoning, is it seasoning? Mm -hmm. You know, is it or is it dirty? Yeah. Um, and so, 
I kind of look at this as a, a multi-pronged, multifaceted issue. Now, um, Jeff and I kind of stand on the side of, at a minimum, you as an artisan should be willing and able to offer your clients a surface that does not patina. Now, right. is that to say that every sealer is per or any sealer is perfect and no. will never need repair? No, not what I'm saying. Uh, but I think you ought to be able to offer it, you know, and, and on the, on the realm of defining colloquialisms. Um, Be before we get into that, Caleb, sure. let me kind of jump back. So, like I said, there's a spectrum, right? You can, we're going to start with bare concrete as the extreme spectrum. And then at the opposite end, and I'm being absurd here, like, And again, I'm for those of you who know me, I'm an engineer. I have to I have to define everything because if you start leaving out important details and generalizing, you kind of lose you lose the big picture, uh, so you don't know where you are. Um, I'm talking like we're looking through the lens of a kitchen countertop. We're not looking through the lens of a fireplace surround or something like that, where you know, or a wall panel. I, I had wall panels in my condo that were absolutely bare concrete, they had nothing on them and they looked perfect for years and years and years. Of course, what gets on a, a wall a wall panel, almost nothing other than dust, right? Mm -hmm. But a kitchen countertop, so that's where, that's the lens we're talking about is a kitchen countertop. So in the extreme, totally bare concrete, and then let's just go and get, you know, the, the thickest, Nasty, well, not nasty, but the thickest epoxy, right? That you pour on, slather on, like you're frosting a cake. That's that's the that's the knee jerk reaction that people have about. They call that a coating. Well, sure, that's a coating, but I'm gonna I digress here. So you have at one one extreme, absolutely bare concrete that is there's it's an immediate surface. There's nothing between you and your surface, but don't breathe on it wrong or it's going to leave a some sort of permanent mark. On the other hand, you've got that thick bar top epoxy that very few artisans are willing to do to accept and very few customers are willing to do. And nobody really does that anymore anyway. Right. Um, it was an option way back in the old days. And that that concept is still being dredged up as an argument against coding. So it's kind of an obsolete argument now, um, you know you got a 16th of an inch of, of clear epoxy between you and your concrete. Um, ain't nothing going to stain the concrete. Um, so here's the other thing I wanted to say is if you are striving for that living finish for, because you have, uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say a smaller population of customers willing to accept that. Um, well, I think, and you can look at the market share of Carrera marble to define that. I mean, how many, how many people do you know of that are actively seeking out Carrera marble who know what it does? Right. Yeah. Um, and, and there and, are those, they do exist. Right. So if, if that's a kind of finish and level of protection that you want and desire, that is so easy to do because almost every conventional sealer from wax to acrylics to you know your run-of-the-mill very easy to obtain um stone Toilet. tile repellent or sealer um and concrete 
polished concrete floor sealers, the 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 guards and the silanes and siloxanes and all that that are that those chemistries are very mature. Um, I'm going to specify, you know, con convergent concrete technology. So was, who owned like a lot of the patents on that? They had their I don't even know if they have it anymore. Pentagard and Pentrasil, um, the progenitors of some popular ones that are similar to that. Um, any of those will give you that performance, right? That's, they don't, they specifically say, you know, don't clean them with acidic solutions. So they don't promise acid protection because you don't get acid protection with those. Mm -hmm. um, and likewise, at, but if you want a surface that is pre-patinaed or requires a patina over time or things like that, that's easy to do. I'll tell you what's not easy to do is to make something that is very uh, livable that doesn't do that. Like that's that's the mountain that I've that's my Himalaya that I've striven for, strove for, striven. No, striven, strived, strived. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, let's. Uh, yeah. That word. That, that's that's the mountain I've chosen to climb because I, as a fabricator, maker, creator, whatever you want to call it, and as a manufacturer, that's what I feel is important to be able to offer. That's difficult. Like that's not the easy solution. That's the really difficult one. There aren't a whole lot. We've already mentioned some of them. Now, and and just to be clear here, Jeff. Um, now you may not fabricate for a living anymore, but you do fabricate for other people on occasion. Oh gosh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've talked to you over the years about a number of projects that you've done for friends or, yep. um, you know, that, again, it's not it's like like I don't business. get my hands dirty with concrete. Oh, half the time it's I call you, you're, in the, you're in, the, in the shop making some. Yeah. I mean, we just had a class and I whipped out my color matching skills to do, we, I, I matched the color, the color of a, um, an antique nursery rhyme book. Yep. Yeah, and I did and, it in four uh, shots. Now, well, this is a total aside, so I apologize. But, um, you know, one thing that, that I think is important too, you know, engineering, you, you asked me to define it um, in some way that is colloquial, we'll call it. Um, it's, for whatever reason, it's kind of been vilified in some senses. Uh, and then it's funny because it gets vilified and then used in a positive way by the same people. Yeah. Um, which is funny to me, but, you know, regardless, um, one thing I would mention is that um, you ran some calculations on a 10 foot table that we made in class this last week. Um, mm -hmm. I don't have a picture of it on my computer, otherwise, I'd share it, but um, I can post it in the show notes or something. But um, it's, it's 120 inches, 10 feet long. And the legs are three, it's, what was it, three inches thick, so I believe? it's three inches thick, um, it's and 10 feet so long span, and 20 inches wide. Yep, so the span, uh, the inches are set, uh, the inches are set in, an in so it's, uh, the legs are set in, inside the legs at four inches, right? So there's a... So it's a 112 inch span. Right. Now, you did the calculations at the end of the week to determine that without scrim, because we, we did a foam core, GFRC... Um, no rebar, no rebar. And we did scrim on the bottom, but you did your calculations without scrim and without mm -hmm. scrim. Now we ended up doing two layers of scrim for reinforcement on the bottom because it's, that's where your tension surface is. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you you determined that without scram at that thickness, it would uh, hold, I believe, five hundred pounds. I was and comfortable that, with a adequate factor of safety. Yeah, comfortable number. Right. So there's uh, a difference between maximum load and comfortable load. So, sure. like when you buy a piece of rope or chain made for lifting, the manufacturer has derated its ultimate capacity to a safe working load. And usually for a chain, it's a factor, I think it's either six or 10, right? So if, if it breaks at 6,000 pounds, they're going to say you can safely lift 600 pounds because that's smart. Um, I usually work with a factor of safety of at least one and a half, but I'm more comfortable with two. Mm -hmm. um, and because I am a real engineer, I don't just pretend to be one. Um, and I have the qualifications here to back that up. I know how to calculate what the stresses are in a, in a particular shape and knowing my, my vast testing experience, what um, GFRC can do, what my GFRC can do. I know that what the material properties can provide and what the structural needs are. And that's how I can say that. Now, this is, there aren't any charts or tables or anything like that. It's, it's a fairly extensive amount of calculations, which is why engineers exist. Um, and I have a side tangential note that I'm going to come back to. I have an article that I wrote many, many years ago. In fact, before I got in this industry, um, I wrote it when I was still working for the U.S. Navy. Uh, it's an article that says what it means to be an engineer. So that's also on the website. I'm going to share that in a moment. Um, so this table, I knew what it could safely take. And in fact, you know how much you weigh. And then one of the other students in class, he sat up there next to you in the middle of it. So we had two people that probably loaded it close to conservatively 400 pounds or so, and mm -hmm. it barely flexed. And I was totally comfortable with that. And oh, by the way, it was one day old. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then, you know, additional, so what I was getting at with that is, is you, there's a number that's associated yeah. with it. That's comfortable right now. I, you know, with some other, you know, I think that there's a difference between the fundamentals and the artistic, right? So mm -hmm. CCI has kind of, uh, always, stuck pretty consistently to we're going to teach the building blocks and the and the cornerstones and the foundations of sorry my glasses are reflective and i'm taking them off mine are really um, reflective but i can't see a damn thing without them so yeah i Sorry. i'm gonna put them back on in a minute when i go to read something but um so we've kind of been very clear like these are the fundamentals, the building blocks, and we hope that you will build on that, right? So I chose, I'm a pretty adventurous artisan. I've done some pretty ridiculous things um, and kind of jumped uh, jumped out from the, maybe the box that we build when we're, when we're formulating uh, a baseline, if that makes sense. Um, and so we want to formulate a baseline and we want you to jump on it and, and jump out of it and kind of used it as, use it as a jumping off point to building block. Um, but there are those who would tell you that, oh, those numbers don't matter. Um, you know, so <laughs> when we did our May event, we did a, um, a 16 foot double cantilever table out of a six inch base. So we essentially 
we have two eight-foot cantilevers. They're a little bit less than eight feet by three inches each, but call them eight feet. Um, and the, you know, the tension on the harped um, tendons was uh, 34,200 pounds, yeah. um, which gave us a safe load limit of 2,000 pounds on the end of the table, on one end of the table. That was all by design. And how do I know it was 34,200? Because I know how much we stretched those tendons. Right. Because I know the material properties and I know how to figure that out. And I know the stiffness of the, of the, of steel and the properties of the concrete. And I know how they interact. And uh, we had a heck of a time cranking on those to tighten them up. And um, by the way, just using a torque wrench doesn't do it. Because how no. the heck do you know, you know. what that tor- what's torque setting to use? It's ridiculous. Right. So, like, let's say for the sake of argument, oh, well, we turned it to 100 foot-pounds of torque. Okay, how does that translate? What's the steel doing? What grade of steel did you use? Did you use stainless? Did you use grade A? What kind of nuts are they? What kind of washers are they? You know, there's there's all sorts of numbers. This is a structural bolt used. I picked it up off a job site when I was working as a surveyor in college. Um uh, there was a local hospital it was adding an addition. And so this is one of the bolts that was kind of lying around. This is what they bolt the steel building together. And the way this bolt is created by the manufacturer, I'm taking the nut off, is there is a splined end, right? So, and that notch below that spline is carefully designed so that, yes, this is torqued when it's put on, there's a special wrench that goes on there that holds the nut and actually turns the nut. And when this thing shears off from the torque, they know it's been torqued properly. But it's very carefully designed by the manufacturer to know what that is. So it's not just some arbitrary, oh, we're going to torque it to 100 foot pounds or whatever. It's very well engineered. And so what I would say to anybody listening who thinks, well, maybe those numbers don't matter. I can just kind of tighten it enough. It'll be fine. It might be. Sure. But you might also get a a situation where you load, let's say you've got an unsupported span of 10 feet and you've post tensioned it or whatever. And you put a bunch of people on said unsupported span, you might get a crack. And to me, that's failure. To your customers, it's a failure. I know this because... As somebody who was deep, elbow deep, knee deep, earlobe deep in manufacturing this material and defining the industry when it was very, very new, I can tell you without reservation, I have yet to meet a customer who will tolerate a hairline crack. So to a customer, to a customer... A crack is failure. So whether it shatters in two or you get a hairline crack, it's unacceptable. Well, and I would suggest that that's failure to the artisans too, right? Because, and and we were talking about artisans, um, because if I were to have um, a piece of furniture, for instance, that was unsupported by 10 feet, that table we made, if I were to get a crack in the bottom of it, I would replace it. And maybe I would, you know, maybe I would do so in another, uh, in another class or event. Um, I would replace that tabletop um, because that to me is unacceptable. Um, and so I like to know what I'm doing 
before I do it so that there's not that chance. I mean, I know for a fact that we can stand 11 to 12 people on the end of the table we made in my studio because it's that's not exceeding the working load limit. Um, I think and- we also have to be careful about, you know, I'm, I'm going to backtrack a little bit because I, I spoke quite absolutely. Um, the reaction of customers to a crack, regardless of where Most- it is or how it happens, is almost universally negative, right? And you can do hand-waving, say, you know, concrete cracks and stuff like that. And by and large, that's true, but that doesn't mean because it happens, it's something people accept. So I'm, I'm, my statements are from the point of view of the customer. And I'm not trying to make excuses saying, oh, well, as a manufacturer of, a, of material, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pawn off subpar material or design and then make an excuse because that, that's often done by less savvy or skilled people. Um, you know, oh, your driveway cracked. Well, all concrete cracks. You, you hear that excuse a lot. And, and that's not what I'm getting at. What I'm what I'm saying is, you can't you can't say, well, your concrete will never crack, because you don't know, right? I've had I've had a house settle and the house broke the concrete. It wasn't the fault of the concrete to hold the house together because that wing of the house settled because the way they designed it, um, and it was clear and evident because the crack that ran through the wall also ran across the concrete and into the floor. So it's like it was pl- clearly. Mm-hmm. an external factor so concrete does crack that doesn't mean that that's acceptable there was a way to fix it um but i'm also what i'm trying to to, to get at is saying you can't just wave your hands and say it's not important or let's say make concrete with too much water in it for instance and then have lots of shrinkage cracking or surface crazing or stuff like that where that's used as an excuse to say, well, all concrete cracks, so therefore what I did is acceptable. I'm, what I'm getting at is the customer's reaction and their expectations are that your concrete is not going to do that. They don't like that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't so, mean it may not happen, but we as manufacturers, we are artisans, should strive to do everything we can to prevent that. Yeah, so by and large, as an artisan, I want to know what my concrete is capable of so that I can set clear expectations uh, to my clients. Now, you know, I also live with my concrete, right? So I've talked about a coffee table that I've had for five years in my house and my kids have abused it like crazy. It's got early Omega on it. I think it's maybe before we started the five-minute induction time and all of that, but I I can't hurt it. I've tried. Uh, I rolled it up a U-Haul ramp. It's a round table. I rolled it on its side up a U-Haul ramp, uh, which are pretty grippy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not scratched. I, you know, my kids have banged forks into it and run knives across it, and they're always driving Hot Wheels and building Legos and, you know, doing all sorts of stuff. Um, you know, in, in fact, for a while, because we we were uh, we were cleaning the carpet a couple of weeks ago, and and so uh, I rolled it up on end, and my kids were like rolling around in the inside of it, banging it into the stone and. You know, I just saw it last week. I stayed with with Caleb at his house, and uh, it's a it's a fairly big. It's like what three four feet diameter. Yeah, it's a thirty six yeah. inch table. So, um, and so you know, all of that to say, um, 
I, you know, I have I have pretty high expectations for my concrete because I want to I want it to I I don't want it to have uh, the same level of patina that my dining room table has. Right. I just don't I, I don't want that. I, I have I want that in certain areas of my life, but not all of them, if that makes sense. And so. I, as an artisan, even even if only for myself, I feel like I need to be able to provide both options. Um, you know, because I want my concrete countertops to maintain a certain level of aesthetic purity. Um, that's not to say that patina is bad. I don't think it is. I have a, my wallet's not in here, but I, I carry around a wallet that has a pen in it. And that pen is made of raw brass and it, it, uh, it has patinaed. And I love that. Um, so, you know, some some over over here might might say, oh, well, you know, they're changing their tone or whatever. No, not really. See, um, leather, of, you, know, you know, leather, whatever uh, is going to there are materials that do what they do. And that's why you buy them. Marble is one of them. There are plenty of people who like Carrera marble because it acquires patina stains um over the years and and you know it's great for because it's un because it's natural and it's unfinished um it's good for food surfaces because it's you know um so like uh, cold stone creamery or whatever that all those ice cream places mix their ice cream on cold marble because it's unfinished um so you know i think and then going back to the sealer thing i think it's interesting you know let's i i've noticed a trend in the industry that a coating is for whatever reason, and let's just let it be right. A coating is defined as um, thick plastic. Okay. So that's the implication. That's, yeah, that's, that's the implication. So your, your, your epoxies, your, your thick, thick our top epoxies yeah. or the thick urethanes you roll on a floor, a garage floor. Right. right. So that's what our niche industry is defining a coating as. And by those standards, you know, there are some coatings out there or there, there are some, some finishes out there that are, you know, quote unquote, not coatings um, or they're micro coatings, actually, as I believe what they define as, as the one. So I would suggest that the coatings that we offer are from that definition, not actually coatings. They're micro coatings. Yeah. Um, when you can't are... measure. And for those of you who have ever worked with any kind of finish, especially a sprayed finish. Like I've painted cars. So when you paint cars, you need to know how much material you're putting down. Um, and way back in the old days, before technology advanced, the the sealers that I chose to use were uh, water-based urethanes that you sprayed on. Um, and you have to measure how much material you're putting down so that it lays out correctly. Put mm -hmm. too much on, and it runs on a vertical surface. You get running and drips and all that, and that's ugly. You don't want that. You spray too little, and you get a dusty, bumpy, uh, uneven surface that doesn't provide protection. So there's a, 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 a tool called a wet film thickness gauge. It looks like a, a metal credit card with teeth on it, and those teeth are a way to measure. You actually set it into the wet finish, and each so the outer the outer corners touch the concrete and then each tooth that's adjacent to it is incrementally Stepped. raised off the surface by a known amount in most cases they're a thousandth of an inch and i think that's 25 microns yes buddy so, um 
most finishes that are sprayed are laid down, you know, uh, depends on the viscosity, but like the finishes that I would lay on, it was very difficult to lay it on less than three mils, less than three thousandths of an inch thick. So a standard piece of copy paper on average is about four thousandths of an inch thick. That's four mils in, in that terminology, not millimeters, mils meaning thousandths of an inch. Um, so a four mil finish is very uh, kind of what the common thickness, like when you when you brush on a pe- uh, paint, like it looks thick, but if you measure it, it's about four mils thick. In In that terminology, that's considered pretty thin, like a for floors when you put down a floor finish often you're putting down 6 8 12 16 20 mils that's a lot of material right you can see it it's thick that's the coating that's that knee jerk you know repulsive repulsive sense and i agree i don't i don't like that Mm-mm. um when i was developing omega which i did first and ovation second um they're both applied identically. They're both diluted to the same viscosity. When you lay down and you finish back rolling that surface, and the majority of what's put on is water, which evaporates, I can't measure how thick that film is because it's less than one mil. It's less than one thousandth of an inch before it dries. And about 70 to 75% of what's there is water. So we're talking about a finish that dries to a fraction of a thousandth of an inch. So I think by that definition, okay. So Absolutely. again, by that definition, it's not it is not the colloquial coating people have that re- you know repulsive reaction to, and I, I would agree. So mm-hmm. yeah, I agree as well. So I think that if we're going to, you know, let's adopt the let's adopt the terminology. It's not a coating; yeah. it's a micro coating. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, from that standpoint, we actually agree uh, wholeheartedly that yeah. coatings by that definition, thick plastic films are not good. We don't like them either. Um, and I think if you look at, you know, certainly my body of work as an artisan, I have moved my glasses because I'm annoyed by the, the sheen there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you look at my body of work as an artisan, if you look at the stuff that Jeff and I turn out from, uh, you know, when we decide on class projects and stuff like that. We don't coat our concrete with that uh, with with that definition. So, um, you know, I think a clear and extremely hard micro coating would be a really good definition of of what we're doing. Just like Um, what I mean, the the chemistry is different. Right. So let's not. Confuse and and commingle. Opinions and impressions and definitions together. Because I can have something that's thin, but if it's made out of, say, urethane, which is extremely chemically resistant, doesn't yellow in the sun, lemon juice and water and things, and oil doesn't touch it, um, red wine doesn't touch it, mustard and turmeric don't go through it, so your concrete stays clean and perfect mm-hmm. and un. un- unsullied even though you have a urethane it may be physically softer because of its chemical nature its characteristics that i've chosen and if you bother to read this article and i also have another article called screening screening 
scratching versus staining. There's a spoonerism for you. Um, in the same area of the CCI article, free article website. Um, I've chosen stain resistance over scratch resistance, right? Because, and, and this gets back to the expectation. So let me, let me touch on that for a second. So if I, you know, I've got a bottle of Acme concrete countertop sealer, I get a sample of it. Don't know what it is. It's the, it's the boat. It's the best of all time, right? Somebody claims that. And I go, oh, cool. I got it. I'm going to put it on a customer's concrete and I'm going to ship it out because I like the way I will like the way it looks. I like how easy it is to roll on or spray on or wipe on or dunk or whatever. Um, it's effortless. I don't have to think. I don't have to practice. I don't have to get good at it. I can just use it. Okay. That's the, uh, that's the, that's the, the fantasy illusion of everything, right? What's the problem there? What haven't I done that is ultimately and 100% my responsibility as a manufacturer that I have not done? I didn't test it, right? Even though a, a, a manufacturer makes claims about a product, those claims don't necessarily translate and transfer to your concrete because maybe the way you make your concrete, maybe the way you finish your concrete and your environment is different. So, and I've always said this, I've said this before I ever made a, made or sold a sealer. It's your responsibility to test any product you use to make sure that you understand what it does, what it can't do, what breaks it, and by extension, how to fix it before you ever use it on a customer's product. Because if you don't do that, you cannot set expectations. And if you can't set expectations, then who is setting the expectations? The right. customer. Exactly. So let me ask you this. Have, uh, you know, Omega, you know, you just said that you've chosen stain resistance over scratch resistance, mm -hmm. right? So what would you do about scratches? Because, you know, like you said, you've made, and, and yeah, how would you set that expectation? I got scratches in my own kitchen. You know, a knife slips, a box is rough and had a sand grain under it and all that. And so my, my kitchen countertops were actually some of the first to be used to sealed. And they were well before any induction was, was re discovered to be required. And are there any stains? None. Are there some scratches? Very tiny ones. Um, again, if you look at this, I'm going to switch screens for a second. Pardon me, because I want to share this. Uh, scratching versus staining. Here we go. So this is the articles. Scratching versus staining. Can countertops scratch? So this photo right here, that's a picture of my kitchen countertop up close. So you can see the little sand grains. And those. this is watered wet. Like I had to put water on this to be able to see it. This is in front of my coffee pot. This is where like we prepare vegetables and stuff all the time. All right. Those little short lines are probably less than a quarter inch long. Does that exist? Sure. How do I fix it? 
Well, there's lots of different ways to do that. Elevation uh, over it is a, a sacrificial surface. I wouldn't don't even have to do that. I can take I can dip my finger in ovation and wipe it on and then take a paper towel to wipe off the excess. And that will because a scratch basically cuts through whatever surface is there and you're getting down to bare concrete. Well, if I can put something on it right away, that's super easy that anybody can do. You know, you keep a bottle under your kitchen your sink, and if it happens, you do deal with it right away. No big deal. Okay. You can't see it. It's protected. It's better than bare concrete. Now, if a customer wanted, and I've had this done a couple times over the years, they're going to sell the house and they're like, oh, could you come in and, and refresh my countertops? Sure. Rejuvenate, I believe. Rejuvenate. Is easy to do. Okay. Well, easy in the sense, easy for me. It's, it's, I'm not resealing Maybe I'm resealing everything, right? Or maybe I'm just touching up a, a, a small area. Um, so it's not necessarily a big deal. So let's not make a mountain out of a molehill. Um, one thing that, again, getting back to is the risk of not knowing what a product does or misrepresenting what it actually does versus what you say it does. Right. That's the problem because all of a sudden now you say to your customer, oh, this is great. I'm protecting your concrete and it's going to, you know, you're going to be happy with it and it'll stand up to a lot of stuff, but you don't really say how much. And there's another what? factor of how long is it exposed to. They're going to discover what makes or break that, breaks that finish. And if they're not happy with that, it doesn't matter what you think or say. So, so we don't have it on the website anymore because a lot of it's not relevant. Most of these finishes are obsolete, but right around that, it was 2006 and 2007, I did a massive test program um, of every possible finish that was marketed and sold and used on concrete countertops from bare concrete to different kinds of waxes to... Uh, penetrating stone treatments to acrylic sealers, to thick epoxies, to polyaspartic sealers, to you name it. Um, even the, the um, popular um, reactive finishes, you know, the pentragards, the pentracils, and, and the derivatives thereof, to see what they would do. And part of the, that, and I, I, again, I still have an article on how do you test concrete countertop sealers, and it that's that describes the process that I that I used then and that, that I still use now is you look at different things, oil, vinegar, lemon juice, mustard, red wine, et cetera, et cetera. But you also look at different time frames, 15 minutes, one hour, eight hours, 24 hours. There are lots and lots of finishes that will stand up to a lot of things for about an hour, between 15 minutes and an hour. But there are very few things that stand up to things for 24 hours. That's, that's where you really start to eliminate most of the chemistries that are out there. And then as, as an artisan, you also have to look at, well, what does this stuff look like? Does it look like thick plastic? Is it bumpy? Is it shiny? Like not everybody likes shiny concrete. 
some people do, right? Um, but you have to look at not just what kind of protection it offers, but does it look good? Like mm -hmm. one of the finish that I tested was essentially the chemistry was very similar. It was basically clear um, truck bed liner, right? Nothing touched it. Gasoline lit on fire didn't touch it, but it was awful looking. It was that thick coating. So mm -hmm. it's like, well, I don't care if it offers protection. It looks terrible. Like you would line the inside of a concrete pipe with it, right? not a countertop. So you have to take that into account too. And I think that's, that's also one of the driving factors that leads people to make maybe less than optimal decisions is they choose a product be based on what they think it looks and feels like. And they, may, they choose a product for them, not necessarily what's best for their customer because they don't talk to their customers or they don't care what their customers think. And then getting back to your point, Caleb, it's it's good to it's it's important to be able to offer both kinds of customers the right kind of product. Mm -hmm. So you have to know what those products do, understand them, communicate to your customer, but also ask your customer what's important to you. Because mm -hmm. in the end, it doesn't matter what I'm I think or what I like, because I'm not making it for me. I'm making it for somebody else. Yeah, and so I think you got to set your, you know, I, I generally set my expectations for my concrete based on, you know, the, the majority of my customers. So I've chosen to seal with uh, with a an extremely hard micro coating, Omega, um, as my standard finish. Now, certainly in bathrooms and wall panels and stuff, all just renovation because it's very simple. It's almost impossible to mess up. Um, and it's more protective than, uh, than, you know, I think even we give it credit for, um, you know, but, and I, I don't set the expectation that, oh, it's going to look the same in 20 years. No, it's not. Yeah. I set the expectation that, you know, here's what, well, honestly, what I tell my clients when they ask, you know, will it need to be resealed? I say, probably, um, mm -hmm. at some point between call it three and 10 years, depending on your use. I think that's fair. It, ultimately, Maybe it's five and 10. I mean, I I've had, you know, like I said, I've got a five-year-old um, coffee table that gets abused on a literal daily basis and it doesn't need sealing. So yeah. here's a good example of this. And it, the responsibility, where does this responsibility for that countertop, or that finish end, and where does it begin? So I, as a manufacturer, want to. I'm choosing to take responsibility for um, protection beyond the point of sale, so that the customer can live with this, and under normal circumstances, with normal levels of care and um, cleaning, that finish, that surface will look reasonably like new for many, many, many years. It's not going to peel up. It doesn't delaminate. It's not going to let stains happen. It's going to be easy to clean. It's going to be easy to maintain versus not, you know, saying I'm making this and then what you get is what you get and it's up to you to take care of it. And that's fine. So like Carrera Marble, right? 
Carrera marble, bare concrete, calcium carbonate. You leave a lemon on it, it's going to etch it. Etching is not staining. Etching is physical damage. And the only way you can get rid of that is to polish it out. Could that be done by the homeowner? Absolutely. Just like a stain on bare concrete can be removed by a homeowner. But if they're not expecting that to happen and they don't know how easy it is to do that because you didn't tell them how to set those expectations, you didn't instruct them on how to deal with that to anticipate that happening, then that is going to be a very unpleasant surprise to them. And clients don't like surprises and then they're going to call you and it's going to be a callback. So again, that article I wrote lays that out. So getting back to responsibility, you have in one of your garages, a 1972 Chevy Nova that, what, it's 51 years old? Mm -hmm. I did my math right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is the paint job perfect? No. No. Does it look good? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? Why? Because it was cared for. It's was it driven? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> was it driven hard? It's driven yes. hard. Yeah. Rode hard and put up wet. Right. This was, this was not a trailer princess car that stayed, you know, in a garage under a, under a tarp for 51 this car years. On, I, would, I would say well in excess of 100 street races. Yeah. Real street races. Um, okay. But... It was cared for. It was loved. So you can have you can have your cake and eat it too, provided both parties are on have parity of understanding and expectations. And I think that's the essence of what we're talking about is is when you have a disconnect. There you go. If you have a disconnect, you're going to have problems, and it's okay. always going to cost you money when there's that disconnect. So it behooves you to do your homework and a lot of, you know, hey, we're all busy, right? There you go. Um, ah, uh, there it is. There it is. You can see, you know, is it, does it have some scratches from being buffed and whatever over the years? Yeah, it does. Is the chrome perfect? No. But also the car's never been restored. It's been garage kept. It's never been restored. Uh, there's a rip in the seat, right? Easy fix. It's a vinyl seat. Makes sense. Um is it matching numbers? No. It was bought brand new. In fact, it was ordered. My father-in-law ordered it from the factory. Um, and he immediately bored out the motor and switched out the transmission because he wanted to race the car. He's since changed out the motor. Um, and uh, so it's not matching numbers, whatever. But it is an original owner car. Uh, it sits in my garage 20 feet from me. Um, and yeah, exactly. You're, you're, you're exactly right. It... Um, you know, you got to set those expectations. Mm -hmm. um, I don't expect it to be perfect. I'd like to drive it. Yeah. Um, and and I think that's the same with my countertops. I don't expect them to be epoxy coated, thick, whatever. I expect them to be functional. And to me, functional is is not only can I use it and not worry about it, but I can also clean it. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, for me, that's that's extremely important. Um, you can also get it wet, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. As far as I know, I can get it wet. Yeah. So, like uh, some of the tests that I do on Omega. In fact, I have some samples sitting out there right now that are that are on my deck that have I been outside and that write some for a year and a half now. Which is, and I have stuff that's even older than that. Um, 
I kind of expect my concrete to be able to get wet and not leave any marks. I don't um, get I don't get water rains if that's what you're asking. So okay. An important factor of any kind of finish that's used outside is it must be breathable. Mm-hmm. And, so water and, darkening is definitely a right. thing that we expect. Right. Water, we water darkening is a thing, and that's not. A, and we even state that it's not a, not an issue because that's merely water passing through. So all finishes, no matter what they are, are slightly porous to some molecules and not to others. It's like a fishing net or a filter. Water can penetrate through, get into the concrete and darken it. Water vapor certainly is is one of those. That's what breathable means. Water vapor can pass through it. Um, And just because the concrete darkens, provided you have good concrete, when that water evaporates in the next few minutes or few hours, there's zero evidence that that ever happened. So it goes back. Now, natural stone does this too. So it's very important for people to understand. Natural stone does this too. And one thing that I would, uh, you know, I, I think there's probably going to be some questions about whitening and things of that nature. Yeah. Now, um, if you were to, say, seal your concrete and then stick it outside a couple of hours after you seal it and then get it wet, will it whiten? Probably. Sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's I, not, I, you're, you're not following the, right. uh, the prescribed recommendations of what you should do from a sealing perspective before you get something wet. So it's not a great idea to seal something and then like a shower bench and then stick it in your shower the next day. Right. Wait a couple of days, you know, Well, let, let the finish cure and you need to understand and, and adhere to what the manufacturer says. Most two part finishes, urethanes, epoxies, polyspartics, things like that have a certain amount of time they need to fully cure. Mm-hmm. So just like concrete, right? We all know that concrete gains strength over time and the 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 normal 28-day kind of thing, it's like 90-95% fully cured, but if we're down at the 2 or 3 day time frame, we we don't expect to set, have the same strength as it will have in 28 days. We all get that. Well, the same thing applies to to any kind of chemical reaction like a, a with sealers um urethanes and things like that they they might reach full cure in say seven to ten days but they might be very nearly fully cured in say two to three days Mm -hmm. so you're getting very good protection early on and then okay baby it i've seen some uh penetrating or so-called penetrating reactive sealers that month it could take weeks months many months to fully react and actually start to offer halfway decent protection. And in fact, I have in my living room a fireplace mantle that I made eight years ago. And I sealed it with one of these popular concrete countertop reactive finishes. And just recently, you and I were talking about these things. I'm like, hey, you know, because it's a far, it's a mantle. Nothing, you know, I've got dust gets on it. That's all. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, well, let's see what happens. So I took a wet sponge. Now this is eight years old. You would think, okay, it's done. I put a wet sponge on it, left it on overnight, and I pulled the sponge up. And first the, the sponge stuck to it, but that's the sponge, I suppose. Yeah. It left a white mark where the sponge was and 
It didn't go away. So an eight-year-old reactive finish applied according to the manufacturer's instructions on a concrete countertop finish designed by that ma same manufacturer to work with that sealer didn't even protect against water. Now, if I was willing to say, sure, it's going to acquire patina, things like that can happen. That's all well with, within its parameters. Not a problem. I don't have a problem at all. No, with that. That's not what's promised. And that's, I think that's what we're getting at is, you know, if what is promised is that it's going to have increased stain resistance, if it's going to, you know, keep staining agents from penetrating the concrete, if it's going to, um, you know, not, uh, you know, not allow those things, and then it does, then to me, that's a failure to meet expectations that were set by. Here's an excellent example of this, and this is extremely prevalent in the stone industry. So what you're going to see here or see in this in the stone industry is what they call a sealer. So these are these are mostly penetrating treatments. Silanes, siloxanes, fluorochemicals. They're also tile and grout sealers. So these are liquids that you wipe on and they soak in and there's literally nothing left on the surface. That if there's nothing on the surface that you can mark or scratch or see any kind of evidence of, that's truly penetrating. But if you can take, say, a razor blade and scratch the surface and then put water on it and see a line, that's a coating. Regardless how thick or thin it is, that's a coating. Um, Regardless so of that, how to me, that's the definition of penetrating versus coating is, you know, is there something physical on the surface? Now, micro coatings, what we're calling omegas, micro coating, other finishes are legitimately micro coatings. Um, there's still something on the surface. They ain't penetrating, folks. They're on the surface, and you can tell that. It's easy to test. So these penetrating stone sealers never, ever anywhere in their documentation promise acid resistance. In fact, they, they good ones specifically call out resistant. Don't, don't get any acid on them. But people will use them, and because the vagueness of, of the terminology used, getting back to what you were saying very at the very beginning, Caleb, defining expectations, people toss around the term stain very loosely. And if you notice, I'm, I, I tend to be very specific because that's just my nature is you don't use the word loosely and with fuzzy definitions because that leads to a lot of misunderstandings. So an acid etch is physical damage. It's not a stain, even though to a customer that's like, well, it's a mark that wasn't there. Therefore, it's a stain. Well, you wouldn't call a scratch a stain. But a, uh, acid etching is very similar. It's more similar to a scratch in that it's physical damage but it than it is, like you know, spilling grape juice on a white piece of uh, fabric and all of a sudden you have a stain. The fabric's not physically damaged. It's just discolored. Mm -hmm. um, so these stone and tile sealers are often using, oh, by the way, folks, never, ever, ever, ever use them on concrete. For one, Concrete's way too porous, and I don't care whose concrete you have. It's they soak in too far to be effective. And once you do that, you've permanently contaminated that concrete, 
And if you want, actually then say, oh, it's staining, I want to protect it now, too bad. Sealers You've contaminated it. It's going to take a ton of work to hopefully get rid of all that. And that's usually by aggressive grinding of the surface. So it's going to look different. Uh, yeah, don't do that. Just don't do that. Do never, ever use any of those on concrete. You're not going to get what you expect. You're going to be disappointed uh, unless you are looking for something like um, a surface that's never going to see more than just a, a damp cloth and dust. So just don't do it on a kitchen countertop. Don't do it in a bathroom vanity or anything like that. You, you, it's, you're just asking for trouble. Um, so that's my little soapbox. And that's one of the things I tested uh, almost 20 years ago was these stone and tile repellents. And man, acid goes through them within 15 minutes. So that does not provide much protection. So sure, they, they cause liquids to beat up. You know, you've seen people, oh, wow, look, water's beating up. It's great. Water beating up is just, it, it's a flash in the pan. I'll do that too. Yeah, so so will plain wax, but that's not offering protection. Like, okay, you want to, like, you, you you wax your car. Well, you don't wax your car. Any, well, you can't. Some people do. But it used to be that the only way to really protect the paint on your car was to wax it. But you had to keep rewaxing it. Well, what happens to your car if you take the paint off and put wax on bare metal and it rains? What's going to happen to that bare metal? It's still going to rust because wax is not a very good protectant. In fact, wax is, it's more of a, it makes us, it's a lubricant. It keeps things, it makes it look nice. It also makes things, the surface kind of slippery. So the surface is not going to scuff as much and it's a legitimate thing to do, and there's some people that like to do it, but don't fool yourself. It's not going to provide any real protection, and it's very easy to test that. So, um, you know, if you if you think a couple minutes worth of protection is good protection, then um, you're rather naive about what a client expects. You, know, you should be looking at a minimum of, say, two to four hours of protection, but reality for long-term things, 24, 24 hours to get real protection against normal things like water and red wine and lemon juice and vinegar and bleach and mustard and things like that. You don't want your concrete being damaged because yeah, so it does. circle back around on this, uh, what is now an hour and 10 minute uh, thing. Yeah. It's um, a little diatribe here. We, I get excited about that. Yeah. Listen, I do too. So, um, to, to kind of sum, summarize, you got into the end, we'll give you the TLDR, the too long didn't read or TLDL, the too long didn't listen. Um, so maybe I should put that in the, uh, in, the, in the chapters, TLDR. Um, but uh, to, to kind of summarize, if, if we as an industry are going to define coding, I, uh, for the transcript, I put quotation marks there. Um, if we are to define coating as a thick plastic film that might yellow, then Omega and Ovation, the finishes that we offer, are not coatings. They would be maybe like a micro coating, mm -hmm. an extremely uh, an, a clear non-yellowing, extremely hard micro coating. I think that is a great definition for those two yes. products. Um, and then if we are going to define uh, engineering, we are going to go beyond tighten it a little bit because that to me is not that's not absolute enough um so some some may say oh well you deal in absolutes we don't like that well okay i'm sorry i i, I like to be able to 
confidently set the expectations for my clients. So yeah, I like to confidently say, yeah, you can cook and the oil that splatters off your stove is not going to stain your concrete mm-hmm. as long as you don't leave it for days on end, right. um, you know, or whatever. So I like to be able to confidently say to my clients, you've got an extremely hard, clear micro coating that will allow you to live your life without damaging your countertops. Mm-hmm. That's what I like. Now, and you don't have to. And, 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 and as an anecdote, as an anecdote, I have had an experience where I had somebody call me and say, "Hey, my my, um, you know, concrete in this. It wasn't in a kitchen; it was in another room in the house. But it's stained. It's horrible. Blah 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 blah." I went out, and sure enough, it had stained. Now, I found out later that that same client had requested of the original artisan, "Oh, please don't put a finish on it. I just want you to put oil on it. I don't want you to do anything to the surface. I want it to age." And then she regretted that decision and there was nothing that I could do about it. Nothing that the other artisan could do about it either. And, you know, the other artisan had basically written it off and said, you know what? She made her bed and she needs to lie in it. And that's the unfortunate part of, you know, the potentially unfortunate part of offering a patinaable finish is that you might offer something to a client that really does want to live with it and let it live and let it breathe and be amazing. And then they find out that when it does that, they really don't like it. Yeah. And here's, so here's something that I've, I've said in, in class to, to many of my students over the years, and I'm painting the picture of, it's kind of a justification of my position on why I choose the kind of finishes that I do is I might have, might have a really good relationship with a customer and exactly along the lines what you're talking about. They they really want to have a finish that shows um, age. Like when I was growing up, my grandma had a, my, my grandfather made a, a wooden table, wooden kitchen table. And it had several generations of life marked in the surface, recorded in the surface. So it had acquired that patina, right? That takes time mm-hmm. for that to happen. That doesn't happen instantly. So if I create a product for somebody that has the potential to acquire that patina, to show those the life events of the wine rings and the coffee marks and the oil spills and the this and that, because that's what's that's what's going to create those patinas. That's mm-hmm. what's going to create patina. It's not some, you know, flowers and 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 lollipops and things like that stains that's stains right it's gonna the surface is gonna stain and it's gonna take time for that to happen so when i put that piece of concrete in it's not gonna have any of that and so i can see why people pre-patina their their concrete but if somebody wants that living history recorded the first time it happens you're gonna have this one mark Mm-hmm. And then it's going to take time for that to to occur, and and you're going to start to see where you you live and use the countertops more in some areas than other areas. So it, you're going to it's going to take time. Like they may be a hundred percent happy with that for years. Oh, I know where you're but, going with this. But human beings don't live in a vacuum, and most people. Pay attention to their peer group, whether it's their friends or their family or both. 
So let's say you put in these beautiful countertops and you've only finished them with wax because you want an absolutely old world beeswax on bare concrete, super happy, super easy, requires a patina, all that. Clients have a big party to celebrate their final kitchen remodel or whatever. Everybody comes over and they have a big party, lots of beverages and things like that happening. And party's over and they're good friends, they're best friends, because this is what best friends do. They help them clean up afterwards. And as they're cleaning up, they pick up a bottle of red wine that was sitting there. And there's this big, big red wine, red wine ring. Say that 10 times fast. And the homeowner, prior to this comment, is perfectly happy with what they have because it's doing what they asked for. And their friend said, oh, look at this stain. I thought you said these were new. How much did you pay for them? And instantly, their opinion changed. and expectation has permanently changed. Because what's important to them? Their I mean, friend's opinion. Exactly. Their peer group's opinion. And that is what you have to take into account. That's the part that a professional thinks about is not just the words that go back and forth between you in your showroom or whatever. It's you got to think ahead. And this is the part that this is what engineers do. Real engineers. They think ahead because that's our job. That's what we're trained for. That's what I'm held responsible for forever. Um, it's thinking about the things that the average person doesn't. What the novice doesn't. And that's why when you hire a professional, you hire an electrician who's licensed and, and trained and qualified to, to do electrical work for you is so that Nobody dies, nothing burns down, and everything works properly to code because they know more than you do. They think about the things that you don't or can't. They know the things that you don't know. That's what separates a professional from somebody who is either a DIYer or an amateur or somebody who's learning how to be a professional. And that's what, that's what CCI's job is, is we are here to learn to help you become a real professional and, based and on our knowledge and experience. One thing that I would, uh, I'm going to tack this on at the end and it could honestly be a whole other podcast, but if the product that I'm selling for a certain thing um, is not like, so if a customer has to buy something more than one time and rely on it to their customers. So let's say it's a sealer, for instance. Um, if there, or maybe it's a, a blended mix or maybe it's, um, a car, a car, maybe it's the oil in your car. That's a yeah. good one. Okay. So let's say that you've got to buy this more than once. Both of, in fact, my wife's, uh, oil needs changing and my light just came on. So I guess I got them done at the same time. Um, so I need to do oil changes. Now let's say for the sake of argument that the oil that I put in my car last time is not the same oil that the same bottle produces this time. So I'll get, I don't know what, whatever my Valvoline, let's say, I don't know, but let's say I go and put uh, 1540 in my diesel truck and there's a new additive in that that has not been proven on diesel trucks and it busts my engine, but it was the same oil. I expected the same thing out of it. Right. And yet 
something changed and I was unaware of that. And so I think where Jeff and I come from on our product offerings with Omega Innovation and, and once, you know, Alpha products and things like that, we expect that once we release them to you, the artisan, the formulation therein is not going to change. You are going, you know, you're going to be able to expect the same thing out of the same sealer as long as that sealer or product is offered. Um, and and so once you learn what to expect from a product, the expectation ought to be that you can always expect that same thing from that product. There's um, a difference. There, there's two different perspective on on from a manufacturer because I am a manufacturer of of products, right? I can continuously change the formulation. I can tinker with it. I can innovate. But really what that means is I'm creating a, a new product every time, every month, every quarter, every week, whatever. And my customers are my beta testers. They don't know what to expect because they're expecting what they used to have, not what they're getting because I've changed it for some reason. And because I'm doing this frequently. I don't have a long track record to base, to be able to set the expectations of, oh, I made a change. You can expect X and you can see that change and it's consistent every time. Mm -hmm. I, well, on the hand, as that. a manufacturer, I will take years to do all that testing up front so that once I'm happy with it, it's done. It's not going to change because it doesn't need to change, right? The innovation has occurred. And I said, here it is. It's not this false promise of, oh, it's only going to get better. Really what that's saying is what I gave you yesterday was no good. I'm hoping tomorrow will be better. That's really what that's saying. And that's well, what you have to experience with an old coding that I actually heard somebody recommend that coding recently. And I was like, ooh. Um, was E32K, yep. and they great uh, example. They actually they changed the formulation without telling anybody. The finish stopped working, mm -hmm. and they lied about it. And you know, I don't think you lost me as a customer. And I'm, I, I, would you I, recommend that coating still? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's not the same coating. I don't know about the E3 part, but that was just the primer. It's an epoxy, right? But the top coat, it wasn't the same, and I stopped. I mean, gosh, it's been well before I ever started thinking about that. That's what kind of what kicked off my idea of, okay, I got to make something now because what I was relying on, you know, it doesn't work anymore. It's not even the same. I had it's the not... same experience with Ampersil. I used to yeah. use Ampersil, which was a, a, I mean, it was that, that I think is going to be bordering on a thick coating. Uh, there's one other sealer on the market that's very similar to Ampersil. And that it, to me, it borders on a thick coating. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, but I used to use Ampersil because that's what the, you know, what people in my industry used. Um, and they changed the formulation to comply with lower VOC requirements and it ruined the performance of the finish. Yeah. If you put on a second coat, it would delaminate the first coat. What in what world, if I were to put a second coat of clear coat on something, it should pull the first one off. Right. No. And so I can no longer use that finish. Now uh so again, manufacturer changed something without notifying the customer, customer loses faith, they lose customer. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Ultimately, it always costs you money. So uh -huh. make sure the decisions you make for you, for your business, and more importantly, for your customers are the right ones.
and understand what the implications of those decisions are. So setting expectations and communication and, and testing are all part of that metric of deeper understanding because ultimately it comes back to you. You're responsible because you're making it. And uh, we want this industry to thrive, right? I started CCI. I, in fact, I started making concrete countertops almost 25 years ago because the state of the art was pretty pathetic. You yeah. know, the reputation that still lingers on was that they were high maintenance. They cracked, they stained, um, yada, yada, yada. And it's taken a long time for me and for a lot of other very respected professionals to drag this industry into something that is reliable. And we don't want it to be undone by somebody who's lazy or dis, you know, dishonest or uninformed or just naive, right? We, we're educators. I would, I would suggest to to anybody out there that if somebody's off, you know, it's like these a, these fly by night kind of people that are offering you finishes or whatever that might change tomorrow or that are constantly being tinkered with or whatever. I mean, they're snake oil salesmen, and I hate to I hate that that exists, but it does, and so. You know, we deal in more absolutes than some people do. And, you know, maybe maybe you don't like that. And that's fine. But what I would suggest is that, you know, what we at CCI try to do is we try to be a cornerstone um, jumping off point for you, the artisan, to build your career on. And where you go from there is up to you. You know, I don't we it may feel like we set a box around you or whatever with you have to do. You should do these best practices. And that's really not at all what what it is you know we want you to have a good jumping off point and that's what i that's what i did as an artisan 10 years ago i had, I, had, I was thinking about this when you mentioned this earlier and i want to mention it because i think it's kind of relevant and this ha doesn't have anything to do with sealers or anything like that but more of the 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 way the way i've always taught things and and the way the approach we take at cci of of educating people is news legos as an example now i'm i'm Absolutely, by every definition, Gen X. Legos in my time, when I was a kid, were very, very basic. You didn't have all these specialized three-dimensional puzzles you get, you have nowadays. You just got a box of stuff. In fact, like I was watching your kids, you had a big box of like eight or 900 Legos that were just all, I mean, cool colors and everything like that. But they it wasn't designed to make a thing. It was just a whole bunch of stuff that you, I literally they were, they were using their imaginations to do whatever, right? And that's how I grew up with Legos is you had all different kinds of shapes and stuff and you made things like you made cars and airplanes and, and castles and whatever your imagination led you to. But you had to learn the fundamentals of how they go together, like... Like you wouldn't build two stacks of something because they exactly. could you have to you, interlock you, them and... So when you start with fundamentals, it's to give people the basic rules of the material. Here's how things work. Here's here's a path that you can take, and it's it's a broad path you can stay on, and you can but wander and discover on your own. But you're not going to fall off a cliff and die, right? I when when you start drawing borders, those borders are to tell you where you're getting into danger. 
Mm-hmm. Right. On the other hand, go into any toy store, Target, Walmart, wherever they sell Legos now. And I always, you know, I'm a little disappointed in this, but I think that's the state of the world right now is they're essentially just big puzzles. You you make the thing on the box and you put it on the shelf and you look at it and that's it. Okay, it basically teaches people how to put IKEA furniture together, not how to design and build their own furniture. And if all you think or expect is for me to teach you how to build something the way I, I'm telling you how to do it and to put this particular finish on it and to make it these particular colors because that's the only thing that I'm deeming as acceptable. How is that helping you? You don't understand anything about the material. You don't understand anything about how structures work. Why, why when you build a deck, do you put the, 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 the joists vertical, not horizontal? Well, and I think that's what we, you know, we run into is like, well, we're, we're giving people building blocks and then they go and they get scared because they don't understand. It's like, well, I wanted you to tell me how to build this one thing. It's like, yeah. well, I'm sorry, we didn't. Um, we're not going to, you know, it's like, this isn't a class on a technique. This is a, a course on the fundamentals and you get to decide the technique. And so maybe that's too open-ended. Maybe that's too unabsolute for some people. And maybe they want, that's fair. you know, maybe, maybe what people want, and I've seen evidence of this, maybe what they want is come to this class, learn this bagged mix in this way and do this with it in your mm-hmm. business. Sure. Maybe that's what they want. And if so, go for gold. We want you to come and learn the foundation and then go on and do other things. You know, there's there are nothing- lots of people who have lots of rich experiences that want to share those experiences with you. And they so can teach you things or- I can't because they've done things I haven't done. And they've done things that Caleb hasn't done. Uh, take Steve Millard up in Syracuse, New York. He teaches of, I don't know if he's going to teach anymore because he's had some serious health issues. But he he taught, I was fortunate enough to be there for a couple of these, uh, how to do a wood look class where he's using basically, I don't know if it's exactly this, but like a wallpaper brush to put paste on and, and glazes. And he is an artist to make a chunk of concrete look like a real piece of wood. It's phenomenal, right? I can't do that. But if you want to know that, there are people that know how to do that. And and this is outside of our little realm, but rock you know, the, the folks who do rock sculpture, they make vertical walls. There are some there are some true artists out there that are wizards with turning a chunk of concrete that's moldable and sculptable and sculpt that into something that you would swear is a real natural cliff or rock or boulder. It's uncant. I can't do that. I don't pretend to do that. I know my limitations. But on the other hand, let's say I did know how to do that. And that's what I offered is like, oh, take this weekend class. You're going to learn how to do that. But if you don't have that innate talent to do that, you're not going to get the same results I do because I've spent the last 10, 15 years capitalizing on my innate talent to sculpt and see to create these looks. I can show you the tools and methods of crinkled aluminum foil and sculptures and and trowels and things like that. But what goes on in here and what goes from here to here, my hand, I can't transfer that to you. Now, 
I can show you the techniques and then it's up to you to practice that. And I think that's the disconnect that some folks have. The disappointment is they don't want to put the time in to practice, to, 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 to master their skill and say, hey, I'm going to go in a direction to create something that is truly mine. Mm -hmm. Because again, when I got started in this, there were no books, there were no videos, YouTube didn't exist, Google didn't exist. Um, you know, fire had just been invented, the wheel was new, uh, I had to walk uphill both ways in the snow, neck deep, all that, right? Yeah. We had to create our own stuff. We had to make it 100% our own. We had to struggle. There wasn't anybody to spoon feed us with, hey, do this and you're going to be successful. There, there were no easy paths to success or no cake mix, cake mixes out there. We've got it easy now. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing to have, you know, a blended mix or a, a sealer that works or prepackaged colors that are popular. Those are great tools that help you move on. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, if you want to stand out above everybody else, put in the work to make it your own. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Jeff, I think that is a great spot to great cap it. Um, yeah. We've done an hour and 33 minutes. <laughs> Our usual. We apparently have something to say on this topic. Um, but uh, yeah, so, um, you know, I hope you have a fantastic day. And uh, y'all who listen later, hope you have a great day. Um, and remember, um, you know, you can like, comment, subscribe, all those things, and we appreciate that. But remember that we're here um, for you. We're, we're here to aid you in your career. You know, um, one thing that, that I, I really want to press is that, like, I've, I've, uh, I've, I've heard of some people that have some, some issues that, um, that I'm going to reach out to that have not reached out to us. And it's like, well, you know, if, if you pay us to come to class and you don't reach out, well, how can we how can we assist you in your journey so yeah. all of that to say obviously if you're uh, new to this industry please like comment subscribe uh we've got a whole big youtube channel with a bunch of information on it a uh, big website with a bunch of information on it dig into that um but we'd love to see you in a class we've got one coming up uh two-day gfrc in november uh, i don't remember the dates eighth and ninth no ninth and tenth um ninth and tenth i know that because my wife's birthday is november the eighth which is why it starts on the ninth um <laughs> And, uh, and then we've got the, um, the ultimate five day, um, you know, GFRC concrete countertops, all of that as a business, um, coming up December, what is it? Fourth through eighth, I believe. Something like that. Um, yep. And so, uh, join us for those things. We've already got, uh, I think the December class is almost yeah, half already, up. which is exciting. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, uh, all, a lot of information there. We're going to put that in the description, like, comment, subscribe, join us for class, call us. Yeah. Uh, we're available for you. So um, thank you all so much for uh, taking the time to be with us this morning and have a great day. Yeah. See you next week. See you next week.